0: The Coin Week podcast is brought to you by PCGS. PCGS is happy to announce the latest hunt for modern numismatic rarities with the 2020 PCGS Quarter Quest, just in time for the Great American Coin Hunt and National Coin Week. This program is designed to engage numismatists from around the country to cherry-pick the elusive West Point mint quarters from circulation. In addition to being another set of great circulating West Point coins, these rarities will feature the first U.S. quarter's With a V75 privy mark denoting the 75th anniversary of World War II. For additional information, visit PCGS.com and happy hunting. This week on the Coin Week podcast, Stacks Bowers co founder Harvey Stack joins me to discuss his company's recent move from their iconic 57th Street location. So much numismatic history transpired over the course of seven decades that Stacks conducted business in the heart of Midtown Manhattan, just across the street from the Russian Tea Room, a block away from Carnegie Hall, and within walking distance from New York's iconic Times Square. Over the course of this period, there wasn't a month that went by that Stacks didn't offer up a major collection at auction, and through their doors walked some of the most storied figures in hobby history. Harvey reminisces on the place that he spent most of his adult life, and the amazing impact Stacks at 57th Street had on the hobby next on the CoinWeek podcast. Hi, everybody. This is Charles Morgan from CoinWeek. I'm delighted in the midst of our nationwide lockdown, To bring you one of the coin collecting hobby's preeminent figures. Harvey Stack has worked as a professional numismatist his entire life. Son of another legendary numismatist, Morton Stack, Harvey has served the numismatic community in New York City and across the country as the head of the family business, Stacks, which since the 1950s has been located on 57th Street in the heart of Midtown, New York. Harvey has worked with numismatic organizations too numerous to list And was named by Jimmy Carter to sit on the U.S. Assay Commission in 1976. He worked with Congress to implement the Hobby Protection Act and advocated for the release of the 50 state quarters program. His work with Louis E. Eliasberg and Josiah K. Lilly not only led to the building of two of the most significant coin collections in American history, but also greatly contributed to the growing popularity of our hobby. With his son Lawrence, Harvey and lifelong friend Q. David Bowers formed their present company, Stacks Bowers. Throughout it all, 57th Street, Stacks' retail coin location continued to serve the New York community. That is until recently, when the company announced that it was to close its stores and move to a new home, leaving behind decades of untold coin stories and a life filled with memories. Harvey, what a legacy for your coin shop on 57th Street.
1: Well, we always tried, going back to the folks, my father and my uncle who, uh, let's say, uh, developed the the, uh, strictly numismatic uh, company back in 1933, tried to locate themselves in places where people would feel comfortable walking and that transportation would be easy. At each uh, almost uh, decade, they had found places that they had to Moved to to keep up with the constant developing of New York City, retail pay, uh, shops started down really years years back in lower New York, and then they uh, moved up to Midtown, more, where, lower Midtown, which was around 23rd Street, uh going up towards the um, Times Square area, and we uh, 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 followed the crowd because that's where the people. Went and the traffic, even the foot traffic was better. We always tried to have a retail shop because people like to walk by, look in the windows, uh, maybe come in and show us the coin that they found in the, the attic or in the grandma's uh, sewing box and, uh, and also come in and buy and sell uh, coins. So we moved from, uh, in the uh, 1930s, uh, up from, uh, 6th Avenue, 23rd Street had stayed there for a while and uh, uh, then as the population moved, as we say in New York North, that's going towards uh, Central Park and things like that, we moved up to 46th Street and we had two different locations there. Uh, One one was larger than the other. So we we did move ourselves around and by uh, 19, right after the uh, Second World War, we bought a building on forty sixth Street and used it continuously to nineteen fifty three and The reason we did that is because it was up in uh, one, a quarter of a block away from Fifth Avenue, a great shopping street in New York, and it was a through street, which means it went straight through from east to west, and also it um had transportation nearby. Uh, with uh, the famous 6th Avenue uh, subway just on our corner, and then, of course, another one that came down at the other corner, which was uh, 7th Avenue. So it was a, uh, and it was a wide street. It was uh, six lanes wide rather than the narrower streets that uh, most of the city has. So it was a popular street, a walking street, with Carnegie Hall, as you mentioned, uh, across the street, and next door to us was Sideway Hall. A number of art uh, companies had opened up. So by 1953, we decided to move uh, to um, uh, West 57th Street, uh, and that's where people found us very, very easily. We were at the same location then, from 1953 to last month, when we were asked to leave. And we did not leave on our own volition. What happened was the uh, Calvary Baptist Church, which is a landmark place, which was part of our large uh, building, uh, also housed the Hotel Salisbury, of which we were considered the tenant of theirs. And the uh, Calvary Baptist Church had to do a major renovation uh, because it, it was getting too crowded with their visitors, they, for years, they were trying to sell all the property, but couldn't find a buyer. And then, uh, and even as, as far back as 10 years ago, we were asked, would we move, uh, when, uh, if they find the buyer? We said yes. We didn't think anybody would buy that property, uh, because it was so large and the uh, church wanted so many things, including having the church rebuilt on the site, uh, which was attached to us. So we just stayed there and, um, uh, we lived there and all of a sudden, uh, about four years ago, they built a skyscraper on the car corner, which is at uh, 57th Street and 7th Avenue, and uh, which was over 100 stories high. And that all of a sudden made the, the, the part of the city change. And what was changing was they were more people, more builders wanted to build larger buildings on the site. The, uh, Calvary Baptist Church and its, uh, Hotel Salisbury probably had about 150 to 200 feet of, uh, ground space facing 57th Street, was attached to a housing, uh, building, uh, behind it, so that altogether it was a great spot to build a, uh, a place. They just had to find somebody with the money. They finally found somebody who would do it promised to rebuild the church on the spot, and we were asked to leave after 67 years. So that's that's the story what happened. We were not thrown out. We did pay our rent always on time, and we always enjoyed having people walk by. So it was a great shock to me, who had been the, in the shop since 1953. I was part of the moving department uh, at that time for 46th Street. And therefore, I found that it was a great, let's say, losing a best friend, losing a landmark, losing everything that we had worked to keep uh, going.
0: Of course, the next chapter will be written at the new location. But during your stay at 57th Street, Stacks was not the only player in town. You had some fairly serious competition. So what did Stacks do differently, then to stand the test of time?
1: First of all, When we first started, uh, going back to the 1930s, most uh, dealers that were in New York uh, did um, have uh, showrooms or little offices up in buildings. Very few had retail shops. And uh, my father and my uncle, being uh, both uh, good numismatists and merchandisers, said the best way to get people to come to see you is in a street floor location. So they opened this place on uh, 30, uh, 23rd Street, I'm sorry, at the 6th Avenue, uh, which was right in, at that time, at Epic, uh, at Epic Center, because it was where uh, other buildings were occurring. Massachusetts Square Garden was not too far away. Fifth uh, Avenue was uh, a block away. Broadway was on the other side. So th- this was the type of location they wanted. And then what happened was, we, when we moved to 46th Street, all of a sudden, within a five-year or ten-year period, a number of dealers opened near us to try to either get those who visited us to go over. Now, what we did, we introduced retail shop, which had sit-down showcases, rather than the jewelry uh, store-type case, which was a stand-up. People were able to sit down and relax. We even had a couch and, and some soft chairs in the very front of the, the, the shop just so that people would come in if they wanted to rest a little bit, wanted to meet a friend there, uh what are you call it, and waiting for somebody to wait on them. Uh, they had a place to sit, and it became a center of like a clubhouse because what happened was primarily on a Saturday, uh New York City worked a half a day, uh, and they tried to, the uh, uh, collectors who worked, a lot of them in the area, uh, came and walked over and stopped over to uh, meet some friends and talk about coins. And we became, uh, we considered the New York Clubhouse without having a name in front, say Club. And uh, But we had auction sales at, at the shop. We had uh, people who came in with collections. We sat and looked at it. Lucky that we had a good inventory to attract those who wanted a very low price coin for a couple of dollars, maybe right up to a more expensive coin. So we it became a place for people to visit. And that's why uh, when people came to see me, the first thing I would do if I was sitting in
0: It also seemed to me that you had a place where a guy like Colonel Green or Colonel Flanagan could show up and rub elbows with somebody interested in buying modestly priced coins. That Stacks at 57th Street was not simply a destination shop for the well-heeled collectors, but for all collectors.
1: Right. Well, let me say this. Uh, I in nine, I became a, uh, uh, I guess you call the weekend helper at the shop when I was, oh, about uh, 8, nine, ten years old. And uh, I first met Colonel Green when he came on a Saturday in his large limousine, uh, came over and said to my father or my uncle, whoever, was taking you care of him at the time, well, what do you got news for me to look at? And he would look at, let's say, five or six trays of new uh, acquisitions. And uh, he would say, and how much is this whole tray, all these trays? So they put a price on it, and he says, uh, okay, I'll take him. He would take the five trays himself, pay out to his car, limousine car, they'd put the good trays in the trunk, they would take him home, and then the next week he came in again or, or or sent in a check and paid for him right on the spot. So that was the first encounter with wealth that I remember. The second one, of course, was Colonel Flanagan, who was another one of these uh, collectors that like to buy quantity like foreign gold primarily, and uh, I remember just taking coins out and showing it to them and uh, helping them pack them up and get to get them ready to go. So and of course we we met uh, who came to us visiting us from uh, Baltimore was somebody like uh, Lewis Eliasberg who had business dealings in New York and was a coin collector, but he really started out wanting. To be a, uh, primarily a, uh, a person who could buy gold coins. Because if you remember, in 1933, they put the gold, at 34, you had the gold restriction Act, And people, uh, were bringing gold coins in and selling them. Because we were able, because the price was, uh, of gold had risen to $35, even though let's say a $20 gold piece was, was only $20 to spend. Um, uh, and also sell them to the public for a few dollars profit here and there. But we were, let's say, a, a place that people got to know that they could get, they could sell their uh, gold or silver or coins to us, and um, so that uh, when Lewis, when Louis Elias. Birthed, condition uh, that was ever uh, assembled and Louis Eliasberg bought it, gave us $110,000 for it and that was our pro- profit for getting it and negotiating the deal and from that point on we were involved with uh, selling uh, and buying from Louis Eliasberg to, to get the collection complete and of course his was the only complete collection of United States coins, and I'm using the word generally, not with every die variety and things like that, but dates, dates it, and shoe dates and mint marks, uh, that had ever been assembled. So that was our, um, uh, let's say, a beginning of growth and eh, great way. Uh, I can tell you this, in 1947, we sold a collection. It was called the H.R. Lee Collection. H.R. Was the of the maiden name, uh, initials of, uh, Louis Eliasberg's, um, wife. And Lee was L- Louis, if you, go, if you think about it, Louis E. Eliasberg. And these are the, some of the duplicates that, uh, came from the Clapp collection. And a good portion of the money that, uh, that, uh, Louis Eliasberg A few years and he still had the whole collection in his hands. So uh, it, it was things that I remember because, uh, of course, the, the folks always were proud of themselves. And uh, uh, going back, as they say, I
0: Did it ever occur to you that what you guys were doing at Stax would serve as a template for other successful coin shops around the country?
1: Well, let me say this. The style we used was, was, uh, was duplicated or imitated by the uh, other dealers around the country as well as in New York where they could get a retail shop. I mean, there's a few uh, that, uh, uh, that started up, Hans uh, Schulman had a retail shop one block away from us so on 46th Street. Uh, what do you call it, Lester Birkin, uh, had a place on 51st Street, Abner-Kreisberg, and uh, uh, Abe Castle became partners because my father and uncle introduced two to, to be good friends to each other. And uh, they became competitors, and they opened up a place on 51st Street, which was also of walking distance from our shop. So we became, as you say, an
0: epic center without having a next door neighbor as a coin deal. In such a competitive environment, how did you all get along?
1: Well, let me say this, let me tell you quickly. The father and uncle got along well. They had their sister, uh, Shirley Stack, uh, as a bookkeeper for a number of years uh, because it was easier to hire and pay less money to the relatives like my, like myself and my two cousins, Ben and Norman. Well, the, ben, Norman, and myself joined Stacks as full-time uh, professionals, if you want to use the word, in 1947. And, um, when the, and we each grew up and given responsibilities for it. Ben was the one who liked to travel the country as his father did, Joseph. Uh, and um, he um uh, he was one of what we called the road people. I was in charge of the shop retail part, and Norman had this great feeling of, uh, cataloging, along with, as my father did. And they both just cataloged together many of the early, early sales that we had. Of course, we were lucky, because what happened was, we attracted also a lot of good uh, professional as well-educated and advanced collectors. So quite often, if we had an ancient coin collection, one of the ancient collectors would come in and help us catalog them. We had a staff that we hired uh, from uh, different uh, places, and people like Henry Grunthor, who later became uh, the Curator of the American Women's Society, and uh, others like James Riss, who was one of the top English specialists uh, in the uh, in the world. All were part of our staff. Look, my father and uncle started before I even got there the full time. Uh, John J. Ford, in the business, he worked for us, ended up in service for three or four years, came back, worked for us for a couple of years, and then decided to go in partnership with Charles Wormser, who was Boritz Wormser's son in making a coin shop. And guess what? We were on 46th Street, he was up in Forty Seventh Street. So, in other words, it shows that people did gravitate. That there was a good friendship among the dealers. We worked together. Not all everybody had full capital to buy things, so they would share with each other. They would uh, somebody buy a wholesale lot, they divided it up among themselves. I mean, we even had people coming from like uh, uh, Philadelphia, like Harry Foreman. He was a great, great. He started out in the fruit business. Is it because he met?
0: At the same time, uh, most of you are conducting auctions. But Stacks had a lengthy auction record, which continues to this day with Stacks Bowers. So what were the Stacks auctions like in the 1950s and
1: 60s? They were more fun than today, only because, A, uh, we did have uh, a um, uh, people who phoned in bids, and we did have people who, which is one of the things that a lot of people did, they said the mail bid sheets because not everybody could travel to New York and, uh, uh, or take the time off to get there. We also had public sales. We had public sales that were held, smaller sales which were held in our shop, which could uh, seat 50 people when you move the campus out of the way. Uh, we would, we would go to hotels, uh, and take larger ballrooms where it was a more important collection and we usually filled them up. We also went to places like uh, Skyway Hall, and we used their rehearsal uh, uh, rooms uh, for an auction sale. And we also were in the Carnegie Hall and a uh, rehearsal department, under the, uh, the base, what we call the basement, which we also sold in. We also sold it in several of the hotels that were near us, across the street from us, but at that time was the great, and brought thousands of people into New York. And I'll tell you something, I never remember seeing that many people at, at, coming to a convention. Then, of course, uh, in uh, 1940, we again we took the convention sale because they thought we did so well, uh, and we sold it in, the, in Detroit. We've had other A&A sales, but then, of course, later on, uh, which you've talked about, we went on the road again Other, uh, three other coin dealers, uh, which was uh, uh, Rancora, uh, the Christberg, uh, and, uh, 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 and I, I missed his name. Uh, but a group of dealers got together, and um, uh, we made uh, a, a special event, uh, usually a week or two before the A so, and A. So that was an eleven-year project. with working closely with a lot of dealers. This was the way we learned to grow.
0: So uh, that's, that's what we tried to do. So what were some of the most pressing issues that you had to deal with running a major numismatic firm from the 50s through the great coin boom and through the major transformational period of the 80s and 90s? You had to have played a significant role in shaping the hobby as we know it today.
1: Well, the thing is, well, we, uh, I together with other members of the family, became very, very active in uh, getting involved with the the government where they started restrictions. Don't forget, we started our life in the business with a terrible restriction which was hard to deal with, which was the Gold Reserve Act of 1933-34. It made buying and selling of coins a more difficult thing to encounter. Then we were involved with uh, the A&A, uh, uh, trying to uh, get involved and we helped straighten it out that we should have uh, uh, conventions in different cities so that people don't have to travel from the West Coast because we're only having the conventions in the East. We we got involved with them on that basis. We further got involved in 1960 when they had an import restriction on... Uh, he always said Groups got together and formed the uh, the, the two separate grading companies: one on the west coast, PCGS, on the east coast, NGC. And then all of a sudden, that became a new way of grading and taking coins for yourself. You know, to yourself. Uh, it did. Each of these services did their job. They did something which was needed greatly. One, they recognized uh, counterfeits average filling. Dealers got involved, and they they did it, and that's why you have today a grading service. By the way, we also were, since we built uh, the original J.K. Lilly collection, which is the famous collection that the government bought in 1967 uh, after he passed away, uh, for $5.5 million, also an unheard of number, Uh, that we were the ones who built it we would be able to watch it. Also, add coins that would enhance the collection. So, today the National Collection is considered one of the finest and complete collections of world coins, ancient times to modern times, uh, especially with a gold coin collection like a Lily uh, collection had, which was what it had over 6,500 different gold coins of the world, and including the United States. And with the United States was all dates and mints. so you can imagine uh, what uh, uh, kind of addition. Why our interest was there? We lost, we lost the collection that we built to the government. But on the other hand, we were there to keep enhancing it.
0: Looking back at Fifty Seventh Street, what stands out as one of your favorite all-time favorite moments from a career that spans your entire lifetime?
1: Well, I will, I will tell you, we, we had several things that happened. We sold most of the major coin collections that came on the market. We were able to help build them originally, because don't forget the families. But it was around for uh, many, many years for over. Uh, some. It was eighty five to year, but it's now 87 years. We're in business uh, since 1933. Um, uh, we built old time collections, and they was known. We sold for most. Uh, educational institutions that had coin collections. We sold private collections the, the same way. We had the good fortune of being able to build them, uh, supply the coins to our auction different ways to make them uh, better. And people always came back to us and said, hey, you did a great job on my way in. I want to give you a chance to do well on the way out. And we fortunately were able to establish one record after another. Don't forget, we were the ones who brought the 1933 and worked it out with uh, with uh, Sotheby's to make the sale where we sold at that time uh, the highest price of gold coin uh, ever brought at auction until Stack's Powers later, a few years later, sold the um, 1794 dollar for ten million dollars. We gathered seven million dollars was nineteen thirty three, at a time when also again, that was a lot of money. Hmm. Yeah. Well, let me say this: today is uh, the, the fact that the landmark has been is being removed. We are temporarily in an office on uh, Sixth Avenue because we couldn't get out uh, and locate a location that was better. We will be in another month or two uh, located on Park Avenue at Fifty Seventh Street. Near 57th Street because we have this this desire and love for the area that we're in. It's we're a popular area. It'll be, walk, be a walk walk by area. It'll be a place that we'll be able to serve as we did for all the years we were in New York. However, I will tell you this: the day we closed, I couldn't go down to the shop because it was too emotional a departure for me. So uh, I kept. I wished everybody was working there that enjoy it. But I will tell you this, it was a shock after, don't forget, I was there from 19, myself, from 1953 to 2020. And if you, uh, I can tell you this, I was in charge of riding the trucks in 1953 while my uncle stayed in one place, my father in the other. And we moved the coins from 46th Street to 57th Street. So I want you to know, it was a great emotional Apologies if you can
0: understand. Well, I can't wait to see the new shop, Harvey, and you can count me in as one of those collectors walking through the doors, hoping to rub elbows with some of the most knowledgeable numismatists in the industry. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends, and remember, you can download every episode of the Coin Week podcast or stream it online for free. Visit QueenWeek.com to learn more.